0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, June 12th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Thousands march in Moscow demanding a Russia without Putin will have the latest. The fighting in Syria intensifies. This reporter went undercover with the rebels in some orchards.
1: As we were sneaking out, our scouts could see the legs of Syrian army patrols only about 100, 150 meters away in the orchards. And I'm not ashamed to say my legs were literally weak with fear as we made that crossing.
0: And how a divided Cyprus affects the wildlife. It's not the best situation for the sea turtles.
2: rise, The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Today, tens of thousands of Russians marched through the streets of Moscow. They weren't celebrating Russia Day, even though today is the national holiday. The marchers were protesting Russian President Vladimir Putin. In fact, this is the first big street protest against Putin since he began his third term as president recently. It was also the first demonstration since Putin signed a new bill that stiffens penalties for taking part in unauthorized rallies. Damien McGinnis reports for the BBC. He is in Moscow. I guess this was an authorized rally. Damien, can you tell us what happened at the protest?
3: Uh, Yes, it was, Lisa. But that doesn't mean people weren't worried about breaking the law because these new stringent laws you mentioned just now also have massive fines involved if people in the context of an authorized rally do something which infringes On the law, for example, something that can be classed as damaging property or something that means they stray outside the designated area. So that can be anything as simple as going down a wrong street. So it's not quite clear from the law how much the fines would be, but there were fears, certainly among the crowd, that if they did something wrong, they could be fined up to $10,000. So that, that really does make people think, and it might have put some people off, but the protest movement hasn't fizzled out. So now the Kremlin has to think of another tactic. And that tactic appears to be clamping down very heavily on the opposition leaders, namely these 10 people whose homes were searched yesterday.
0: Yeah, one of those people whose houses was searched is a woman who's a TV anchor there, fairly prominent right now, but not known as a major part of the protest movement until fairly recently. Tell us about her.
3: Yes, Ksenia Sobchak, she's an interesting character. She started off as a bit of a sort of party girl and she was known in Moscow as sort of the Russian equivalent of Paris Hilton. A very well-connected family and she was very big on the on the party scene. She then became quite famous as a as a TV host and a chat show host. And at the end of last year, she became more and more involved in The opposition movement. So she is at the more glamorous end of the protest movement, if you like. But it has to be remembered that this opposition movement is very diverse. So it's hard to even call it a movement, really, because it's all it is is anyone who doesn't like Vladimir Putin. So you have quite extreme nationalists who might have some views which many Russians wouldn't agree with. You also have communists who really mourn the loss of the USSR. You have very Western-minded liberals. You have human rights activists. It's a real hodgepodge. And yes, Ksenia Subcek is is part of this, but the other leaders include Alexei Navalny, who's known as a blogger, You also have Nimtsov, who is part of the old school parliamentary opposition. It's all a real mix. And this, in a way, is a strength of the opposition movement because it means they appeal to a lot of people, But it's also one of the weaknesses because for most Russians, it's just too diverse. It doesn't actually offer an alternative because none of these various elements would ever be able to agree on any any concrete policy at all. So there's no actual alternative right now to what Mr. Putin has to offer.
0: Thank you, Damien Damien McGinnis covering the protest today in Moscow for the BBC. Thanks a lot.
3: Thank you, Lisa.
0: Israel has started a campaign to deport African migrants from the Jewish state. More than 200 Africans have been arrested in recent days. Most of them are from South Sudan, and that is where they're expected to be repatriated. The Israeli official behind the effort has said that nearly all of the 60,000 African migrants living in Israel will be deported. As the World's Matthew Bell reports, it's not likely to be quick or easy.
4: At one time, Israel welcomed asylum seekers from war torn Sudan, but the government has decided that the newly independent nation of South Sudan is now safe. Israel's 1,000 or so South Sudanese were recently offered a deal a free plane ticket and $1,200 cash to leave the country. Then, a few days ago, immigration authorities started arresting African migrants by the dozens, mostly South Sudanese. They were told to empty their bank accounts and prepare to go.
5: One of the reasons is to show off because the public discourse is such that migrants from Africa are frightening some of the public.
4: Adi Lerner is with the Hotline for Migrant Workers, a group that helps Africans in Israel. She says rounding up immigrants is more of a political ploy than anything else. Some of those detained this week had already agreed to leave the country.
5: I would expect any government, and and the Israeli government in particular, to try and solve the situation, this problem calmly, and not to incite, as we've heard many politicians, members of the Knesset, and ministers have done during the last few weeks.
4: In one recent example, a right-wing lawmaker told a crowd at a Tel Aviv rally that the Sudanese are a cancer in the body of Israel. What followed were a number of attacks on African businesses, including a small shop run by 23-year-old Helen Barakat from Eritrea. (laughs) Barakat says a group of Israeli men forced their way into her shop, threw a brick at her, and then trashed the place while she hid in the bathroom with a friend. It was terrifying, she says. Now she's thinking about leaving Israel, but doesn't have many options. Barakat's case illustrates the scope of the problem. About 60,000 African migrants are living in Israel. Around half of them are from Sudan and Eritrea. Israel doesn't have diplomatic relations with Sudan and can't come to terms with Eritrea on sending people back. So tens of thousands of Africans languish illegally in Israel. Most can't work here, and most aren't able to go anywhere else. Meir Tourjaman is a 54 year old native of South Tel Aviv. He says the African migrants in Israel are invaders. They've brought crime and insecurity to the neighborhood, so he's helping the locals take matters into their own hands by organizing self defense classes and creating neighborhood watch groups. <laughs> Georgiman says we don't like when these people, the Africans, take away our security and safety. We established a state for the security of the Jewish people, he says, and that is the only thing we have. When I mention the attack on the Eritrean woman's shop, Georgiman doesn't applaud it, but he won't condemn it either. These people are not part of the state, he says. But in recent weeks, the state is coming under more pressure to address the situation. Foreign Ministry spokesman Paul Hershen is unequivocal about the incidents of violence against African migrants. He says these are criminal acts, plain and simple. And Hershen says the anti migrant rhetoric from Israeli officials has also been unhelpful. About the rhetoric, I have two problems. The one is
6: that it actually doesn't reflect whatsoever who we are and how we behave. And it gives a distorted uh, message to the foreign media and the foreign diplomatic corps and
4: others that are here in israel and to the world at large persian says israel is working to address the issue of the african migrants in a responsible way it's building a fence along the border with egypt Construction of a large new detention facility is underway. There is talk of putting up a tent city in the desert near the Sinai border for migrants. But the long-term solution, he says, is really in Africa. And until then, Israel might have to host a sizable number of uninvited African guests. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Tel Aviv.
0: Now a story about a different kind of migrant. In this case, people in China who've been displaced from their homes by major events, such as the Beijing Olympics in 2008 and the Shanghai Expo in 2010. Hundreds of thousands have been forced to move to make way for these signature events. Among them is one Shanghai couple. Their house was demolished five years ago in preparation for the Expo. They still haven't been compensated. Now they're squatters in an empty apartment meant for those displaced by the Expo. They've been ordered to leave by tomorrow, but they're not so sure they will. The World's Mary Kay Magstead reports from Shanghai.
7: The Expo Homeland Apartment Complex sounds like it should be something grand. It's not. It's a series of apartment compounds for Shanghainese who were forced to give up their homes to make way for the Expo. It backs out on a trash incinerator. Enter one of the buildings near the back, and there's a door with a sign on it. Right and wrong cannot be differentiated. Black and white cannot be distinguished. The law is not respected. To live is hard. To die is harder. And then, private property. Enter at your own risk. Inside, you'll find Li Guanrong, who put up the sign. Lee is a slim, no-nonsense 40-year-old former housekeeper married to a former security guard. On the wall is a photo of the artist Ai Weiwei. The place is dingy and disheveled, with concrete floors and purple bedspreads strung up as curtains. Lee and her husband have been living in this two-bedroom apartment since April, when, tired of being homeless, they claimed it for themselves. This
0: compound is for people who lost their homes to the expo construction, so I think I have a right to be here because I lost my home to expo construction. Tomorrow's my last day here, according to this notice. If government authorities come with authentic papers, I'll leave this place peacefully and then try to go through legal procedures.
7: But if proper procedures are not followed, she says, well... She gestures to a big canister of cooking gas. You mean you would set this place
8: on fire?
0: I can't say 100% that I would set this place on fire, but I'll do my best to protect my property with my life. What I'm doing is for my respect as a human being.
7: Lee has the grim determination of someone near the end of her rope. She says she and her husband have tried petitioning the local government, the provincial government, the national government. They went to Beijing during the National People's Congress in 2009, hoping to appeal to China's leaders. Instead, they were detained and sent home, and Li's husband lost his job as a security guard for, supposedly, disturbing the peace in Tiananmen Square. By that time, the couple and their teenage son had already spent a couple of years sleeping on the street or in miserable shacks. Meanwhile, they knew apartments in this compound were standing empty. Lee suspects local officials have kept some for themselves. When I visit Lee, a PhD student named Daniel Zhang is visiting too. He's doing his dissertation on the gentrification of Shanghai, and he says Lee's case is far from unique. Officials seem to have put beautifying the city ahead of the rights of low income people.
5: I don't think they care. They say that they want to improve the quality. Of the the city center, where the expo site now is, and the mayor of Shanghai they even say that they want the whole waterfront to the to the people, but obviously the displaced are just not the people they want.
7: Zhang says he got interested in his dissertation topic due to personal experience.
5: My home was demolished in April last year, and that's a home where I lived for twenty years, and the government just saying they want to build a new town in a place I live, and I don't see the necessity for building that. And they call it public interest.
7: He says he has tried to get answers from the Shanghai government.
5: I made a lot of phone calls. In one day, I even made like 20 phone calls. They keep playing ping pong with me, say they are not involved in this anymore, and trying to push me away. And I'm still trying.
7: For his trouble, he says, the Public Security Bureau called him in and warned him that he was endangering national security. It told him he'd better be objective in his research. He thinks being in Lee's house tomorrow is an objective way of seeing what happens to her when her deadline to move out comes up. Lee says she's asked friends and supporters to come, and she's ready to make a stand. A government that says it values a harmonious society might want to think hard about calling her bluff. For The World, I'm
0: Mary Kay Magstad in Shanghai. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International.
2: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Burmese democracy activist Aung San Suu Kyi is embarking on a European tour this week. Among her stops, Norway, to pick up the Nobel Peace Prize she wasn't able to receive back in 1991. Aung San Suu Kyi spent many years under house arrest in Myanmar, punished for her opposition to the country's military rulers. That's all changed now, though, as the Burmese government cautiously allows a democratic opening. Suu Kyi was released in November 2010, and in April of this year, she won her her first seat in parliament. She's going to be getting the red carpet treatment in Europe. In England, she'll have the rare honor of addressing both houses of parliament. In Dublin, she'll share the stage with Bono of the band U2 to thank him for his support. Peter Popham is author of The Lady and the Peacock, The Life of Aung San Suu Kyi. He met Suu Kyi twice, and he thinks that her new life as a global celebrity and politician has its challenges.
6: I think she's moved into a completely new and different phase and the challenges she's facing now are quite different from the challenges she's faced in solitude or as the leader of a movement. And in fact, she's already confronting these challenges and I think finding some problems because, for example, she went to Thailand earlier this month. It was her very first trip outside Burma and uh, she took part in a prominent economic forum there and went to a refugee camp. But she also managed to offend her most important ally, the Burmese president, who was also due to appear at the same forum and who only discovered very late that uh, she was now planning to to show up. How did she she offend him? Because of her star quality, uh, he would have found himself playing the second billing to a person who was a prisoner of the Burmese state less than two years ago. So he cancelled the trip. So I think she's she's now finding by trial and error that she's into a phase where she's going to have to use her political instincts and her diplomatic skills in a way that she hasn't had to in the past.
0: Well, to use your expression there, this kind of star quality that she has. What what about in terms of what she has not only said but done? Because she's been compared to Nelson Mandela, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. as as a champion of nonviolent resistance.
6: Well, the comparison to Martin Luther King is very just because she has embraced nonviolence in a very explicit way. And She wrote about the revolution of the spirit, a revolution founded on Buddhist religious values and which owes an enormous amount to Mahatma Gandhi, who is perhaps her most important inspirational figure. Uh, Her career is beginning to resemble Mandela's now that she's free and she's found an equivalent to Mandela's white ally, Willie de Klerk, in the Burmese president, Thane Sein, who has turned out to be a strong ally of hers. And this is why she has got an enormous challenge on her hands to actually make good on her potential.
0: What kind of comparison can you make, Peter, between the two interviews that you had with Ansan San Suu Kyi? One of them was in 2002, the other one almost 10 years later. This is just last year. When you spoke to her, did you notice anything different about her demeanor, her devotion?
6: Um, not really, no. I think it's remarkable how little she's changed over the years physically, but also uh, in her spirit and in the way she presents herself. The The, the risk is that with the, all this attention she's been getting, that she might become a bit regal, you know, a bit of a imperial sort of figure. I mean, certainly in the early years, she didn't have uh, any sense of of being power-hungry or sort of lusting for attention. Uh, There's a nice description given by an assistant of how after speeches that she made in 1989, addressing huge crowds and gaining their ovations, she would come down stage, off the stage, pick up her needle and thread and darn the, uh, the trousers of her bodyguards or sew buttons on them. And so she she didn't have the sort of arrogance that often goes with people in positions like hers. But I think there's a certain solitude, perhaps, because there's nobody else in her party among her senior colleagues who's got anything like her sort of experience. Most of them have never left Burma. So I think it's possible that she is a bit short of close advisors who can actually help her to go on the right path.
0: Well, as she launches this international tour, is there any risk that she takes that she will not be allowed back in Burma?
6: Fain Sain, the president, has has played a pretty deft hand. And his treatment of Suu Kyi, his respect for her and his allowing her to enter political life showed that he realizes her importance to the rest of the world as well as to the Burmese people. To try to to do a U-turn at this point would be extremely uh, damaging and self-defeating for him. But after this slightly negative experience in Thailand a couple of weeks ago, one hopes that the organization of the European part of the tour will be in better hands.
0: All right, thank you. Peter Popham, who is the author of the new biography of Aung San Suu Kyi called The Lady and the Peacock. Nice to have you in the program.
6: Thank you very much, Lisa.
0: We've got more online about the rapid changes in Myanmar. The limits of free speech, in particular, are changing so quickly that nobody in the country is quite sure what they can and cannot say. Former Burmese dissidents talk about that in our latest World in Words podcast. You can check it out at theworld.org/language. By the way, many Burmese affectionately refer to Aung San Suu Kyi as the Lady. And with her newfound celebrity status, well, we thought that the lady's upcoming tour needed some publicity worthy of a rock star, so we took the liberty of imagining what that might sound like. Maybe something like this.
9: The world's been waiting since 1988. If you like oppressed world leaders like Nelson Mandela and Václav Havel, you're gonna love Aung San Suu Kyi. She's just like them, plus, she's a lady. Oh, she's a lady. It's Aung San Suu Kyi. She's a lady. World Tour 2012. And
1: the lady is mine.
9: She's got style. She's got grace. She's a winner. A Nobel Peace Prize winner, that is. The last time you saw her was 1988, the year Prozac came out, and George Michael's faith hit number one.
3: Cause I gotta have faith.
9: Well, this lady's got faith, and she'll be rocking it at a sold-out show at Oslo City Hall. And in London, a very special one-time performance at Westminster for lords and commoners, and the Dublin doubleheader that fans of the lady definitely don't want to miss. One time together, Ansan Suchi and Bono, singing such hits as Stand Next To Me and Make Me Feel Better About Myself. Oslo, London, Paris, Geneva, and Dublin. It's the Ansan Suchi She's a Lady World Tour 2012. Bottles, cans, and other beverage containers strictly prohibited.
0: We're going to finish this half of the program on a completely different note with a quick update now on a story from Australia that's making headlines for 32 years now. In 1980, baby Azaria Chamberlain vanished from the tent where her family was camping in the Australian outback. Her parents said that the infant had been taken by a dingo, which is a kind of wild dog. But the authorities doubted their story, and Mother Lindy Chamberlain served three years in prison for murder. She was released after new evidence emerged, but the case dragged on, dividing Australians for three decades. Skeptics thought a dingo wouldn't be strong enough to take a baby. But in recent years, dingoes have been responsible for three fatal attacks on children. And today, an Australian coroner ruled on live TV that the dingo really did take baby Azaria. Lindy Chamberlain expressed her relief.
8: It's been a long time coming and waiting for the truth to come out, but it's finally here now, and
0: that's wonderful. You can check out our previous coverage of the Chamberlain case. It's at theworld.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, a Grammy-winning record producer heads to Malawi in search of new talent
10: you can have thousands of bands coming out of a city like Los Angeles and zero coming out of an entire country with with a rich, diverse history is, uh, I think, absurd. PRI's The World
2: is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project Six, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project Six. Global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. A United Nations official said today that the conflict in Syria is now a civil war. UN peacekeeping chief Hervé Lassoud told reporters that the Syrian government is fighting to regain control in parts of the country. Throughout this conflict, the Syrian government has kept most foreign reporters out of the country, and those who are allowed in have their movements closely monitored. The BBC's Paul Wood has slipped into Syria, undercover, several times in the past 18 months. He tells us the Syrian conflict has been morphing into a complex struggle.
1: If you cast your mind back a year now, 18 months now, to the beginning of the Syrian uprising, it seemed a pretty simple story then. Of people rising up against what was regarded as a very nasty regime, a regime which had not allowed its people freedom over 40 years, and something therefore which countries like the United States felt it could pretty unambiguously support. Uh, Now things are uh, a little darker there. People are worried that if the rebels, the Free Army, are armed, will that mean somewhere down the line that they commit a massacre of the Alawites, the minority who rules Syria? And there's almost a sense of paralysis by the outside world, and yet. Uh, a great a feeling of great moral pressure to do something because of these uh, these terrible massacres that we're seeing because of the use of heavy weapons against civilian populations. Syria is a very very difficult problem.
0: Well, that must come into such stark relief when you're on the ground in Syria and you've been there, correct me if I'm wrong, four times is it?
1: We were smuggled four times across the border from Lebanon, going there covertly and to state the obvious, without visas. Uh, and three times into the city of Homs. We couldn't get into Homs the last time. Uh, There's no more opposition presence in Baba Amma, where we went on the previous three visits. We were trying to go to a place called Haldir, but it was just impossible.
0: So without disclosing anything, obviously, that would put further reporting trips in jeopardy, can you tell us how you're able to move around? Because you must have the help of civilians or members of the Free Syrian Army. Does it work that way?
1: People use a combination of different things. You can pay smugglers who then bribe Syrian security men and and Syrian soldiers. You can go with fighters. You can go with activists. We've tended to go with activists or fighters. We've never paid so far. I think I would trust somebody more who was doing it for ideological reasons. Uh, You sneak between Syrian checkpoints. You go around them. It's getting very, very difficult to cross now. The opposition believe that the Syrian army has put 1,500 soldiers onto that border and 11 tanks. And on the way out, we were stuck for about a week uh, in the orchards, which which crossed the border and are used as cover for the smugglers, being randomly mortared by the Syrian army with these fighters who were just living off unripe apricots in the orchards. And uh, nothing had moved across that border for a week, not casualties out, not weapons in. And as we were sneaking out, our scouts could see the legs of Syrian army patrols only about 100, 150 metres away, in the orchards, and I'm not a, not ashamed to say, my legs were literally weak with fear as we, as we made that crossing. If they'd have spotted us, I think they would have opened fire. It Would have been very, very difficult. So, what did you do? Well, we managed to sneak out. We'd been waiting for a week. There was, you know, we felt the need to move. It wasn't particularly good sitting in that orchard and being mortared. And I, we were the first people to cross out. I think for about a week. And similarly, moving around in the country was difficult. We we didn't know, but. There was apparently a shipment of anti-tank weapons, the kind of weapon which could really change the balance on the ground, which we were told had come in from Lebanon. So we were driving down this one road, which is the only road we could go down the uh, the highway around Homs. Uh, you can't go through the countryside there because it's Alawite and Shiite villages. And there were soldiers about every 150 metres randomly stopping vehicles. And we thought then, well, now we're going to get caught And the activists and the fighters we were with were somewhat taken aback by this heavy presence on the road. They'd never seen anything like it. So, again, we got stuck for a week at the other end of that road, couldn't move back down the road because of the heavy military presence on it. So all of that gives you an idea that when the Free Army talks, you know, I think there was a piece in the Washington Post a couple of days ago about how well the Free Army is doing. But, you know, they're not doing so well that (laughs) you don't have to hide out for a week here or a week there.
0: So how do you, when when you're relying so much by necessity, I guess, on activists, those in the Free Syrian Army, these are the rebels, how do you know who you can trust and how do you verify the things that you're told? Maybe give us an example, Paul, of one particular fact of a story that you were trying to prove before you could report it.
1: As for verifying things, I mean, that's the reason why we take these extreme risks or um, you know, reasonably large risks to go there so that we see things for ourselves. I remember when Baba Amma fell back in the first week of March, people were streaming out, uh, going around the official checkpoints, walking for days on foot to avoid the army checkpoints with the orchards and whatnot. And we had all these people screaming at us. They're, they're slaughtering us. They're murdering us. They're cutting our throats. There are bodies in the orchards. My default position you know, having covered about a dozen wars, to be extremely cynical, to disbelieve everything initially until it's absolutely proved to me. And we're hearing this stuff for days uh, and I wasn't reporting it because it didn't seem to me to be the absolutely incontrovertible proof which we needed. Maybe it was hysteria, maybe it was rumour being retold as fact, maybe it was propaganda. But uh, we found one family who said that two days ago they had survived one of these massacres the father, the head of the house, had been working in the fields and hid and was watching from only 100 metres away as they took out his brother, a couple of other male relatives, and his 12-year-old son. And we questioned every member of the family. Their stories were consistent. I think I'm almost embarrassed to say we stayed there for four or five hours asking them, tell us again, tell us again, tell us again. And then I said, as we left, God is watching, and uh, if you are lying to us, you know, it will be a very bad thing, which is a terrible thing to say because I, undoubtedly they'd gone through this, but I was so terrified of getting it wrong. This was one of the early massacres which now, unfortunately, are becoming routine. Let's hear a little bit of that
0: report that you're mentioning now. This is a report you filed in March.
1: On Friday, troops took 36 men and boys from one district, they say, killing them all.
8: My son's
1: throat was cut, she says. He was 12. One soldier held each down with a boot... Another came with a knife, says her husband. He was hiding 50 metres away. I could hear their screams, he says. Can such horror stories be true?
0: Oh boy, that leaves you in such a position where you have to verify this kind of thing. Could you ever have almost equal access to pro-Syrian civilians?
1: No, and... We collectively at the BBC and as journalists need to make a a big effort to try to get more of the other side of this story. Um, But I think the Syrian government is almost doing itself a disservice because President Assad is still there because he has support and people support him because they're afraid of what might happen. If a revolution, which appears to be a Sunni-led revolution, succeeds, will there be a revenge against the Alawites, the Shiites, the Christians? These minorities are sticking to Assad for fear that something worse will come afterwards. And I think that is an entirely reasonable point of view to reflect. And, um, you know, journalists need to do that. But they they need the visas, the official visas to get in to be able to accomplish that. And which, those are you know, they not impossible, but they are restricted. Yeah.
0: Paul Wood of the BBC. Thank you. Thank you. The BBC's Paul Wood, who has reported undercover in Syria four times in the past 18 months. He hopes to go back. Today's geo quiz takes us to Cyprus. Cyprus is the third-largest island in the Mediterranean after Italy's Sicily, and Sardinia. Unlike those two, though, Cyprus is split in two politically, anyhow. happened 38 years ago. Strife between the island's Greek and Turkish communities, a Greek-supported coup, and a Turkish invasion all led to the partition. To this day, the larger Greek sector is in the south, while the Turkish sector occupies the northern third of the island. The country's capital is also divided, and that is the city we want you to name today— After the fall of the Berlin Wall, this city became the only remaining divided capital in the world. Think fast. The answer's just around the corner. Hope you did think fast, because time's up now. The name of Cyprus's divided capital is Nicosia. Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots have grown used to their island's artificial split, but other forms of life aren't aware of it. Sea turtles, for example, nest on both sides of the island, and they're threatened by human activity on both sides as well. Ari Daniel Shapiro reports now on what the political divide in Cyprus means for efforts to protect the turtles.
11: It's hot here in June on the west coast of Cyprus. The sun scorches from above and the sand burns from below. Mirula Haji Christoforou has been walking along Palos Limni Beach for an hour. She probes the sand with a long stick.
8: Ah! I found the eggs. This ah is the eggs.
11: <laughs> She's found another one, a loggerhead turtle nest, a hollow in the sand filled with eggs. Haji Kristoforu places a cage above the nest.
8: This uh, cage keeps the animals, the foxes, away. But the babies, when they come up, they are free to go straight away to the sea you see, we didn't disturb nothing.
11: Haji Kristoforou's had a long time to perfect this technique.
8: We started this project in '74 after the Turkish invasion.
11: That's the year Cyprus split. The Turkish Cypriots, living in the south, evacuated to the north. And the Greek Cypriots, living in the north, including Haji Kristoforou, were ordered south. She ended up helping out with a beach survey. One day, on a beach not far from here, someone spotted a hole in the sand.
8: Suddenly, baby turtles started coming out. I was so excited. (gasps) I don't remember how long I was screaming because I couldn't believe my eyes.
11: That was the beginning. Since then, Haji Christoforou and her husband have been fighting to protect the nesting beaches of loggerhead and green turtles, the two species native to Cyprus, first for the Greek Cypriot government and these days as volunteers. It's often been a lonely cause. Many nesting sites in the south have been damaged by development, and many others remain threatened. But the couple has managed to protect some important beaches, and those efforts seem to be paying off. They say there are at least two times more loggerhead nests on those beaches now than just five years ago. But their efforts here in the south cover only roughly half of Cyprus's coast, and the couple says they don't know much at all about the status of sea turtles in the north.
1: It's difficult because of the political situation to cooperate directly.
11: That's Andreas Dimitropoulos, Mirula Haji Christoforou's husband. He's the former director of Cyprus's Department of Fisheries and Marine Research, and he says scientists on the divided island rarely work together.
1: It falls back to a a question of recognition. How do you you cooperate with a non-existent country? Like most
11: of the world, the Greek sector of Cyprus doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the Turkish sector. And that may be a problem for Cyprus's sea turtles. The research is scant, but turtles from all around Cyprus may mingle and even interbreed. And it's estimated the island as a whole hosts the nesting sites of nearly 10 percent of all the Mediterranean's loggerhead and green turtles. So each side of Cyprus is an important part of the bigger picture. That's why Wayne Fuller sees the lack of cooperation as a missed opportunity.
5: It would be good if everyone could work together on the same issues, pooling the data because that would give it much stronger validity if you can all work in the same direction, you know.
11: Fuller runs a turtle conservation and research program at the European University of Lefka in North Cyprus, in the Turkish sector. He says the North's political isolation makes it hard to get the research funding he needs. And it's not just Fuller who's looking for support. Munur Hashimolu has docked his small boat at a quiet pier in the northern port of Lapta. He's the head of the Fishermen's Union in northern Cyprus, and he says crews here are encountering more and more turtles.
12: <laughs>
11: Hashimolu says the turtles are getting into nets and damaging them. Fishermen try to save the animals or put them back in the water, but it's difficult. The growing number of reported encounters suggest that at least some of the conservation efforts in the north are working. Still, Hashimolu says about 800 turtles a year die from encounters with fishing boats. He adds that those encounters cost the fishermen a lot of money. He says the EU could help by paying the fishermen not to fish during turtle breeding season. But that's not likely to happen because the Turkish sector doesn't belong to the EU. Which brings us back to the political standoff.
8: Definitely it's not a catastrophe, but it's not the best situation for the sea turtles.
11: Lily Venizelos runs the Mediterranean turtle conservation group Mediset. A recent independent report suggests that overall populations of both Cypriot turtle species are falling. Venizelos says a resolution to the political divide would help— but what's urgently needed is for turtle scientists to rise above the political fray.
8: The only hope is for researchers to collaborate, because unless you know globally what's happening in a country, how can you protect a species in the sea or on its shore?
11: It's a sentiment that resonates with Mirula Haji the sun's setting over the Mediterranean now, a purple sky and sea gradually fading to black.
8: This small island cannot survive divided. It's so small to divide people. They have to find a solution to live together.
11: Haji Christoforo is hopeful for a future that's less rooted in division and more tied to working together. She says the environment has no boundaries, something the turtles have known for a long time. For The World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Cyprus.
0: Ari's story is part of the series One Species at a Time, produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. You can see how volunteers place cages over turtle nest sites to protect those eggs. The video is at theworld.org. From turtles to swans and Malawi mice, stay tuned to PRI.
2: The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Now, Swan Lake, the classic tale of Odette, a princess turned into a swan by an evil sorcerer's curse. The story of Swan Lake has been interpreted in countless ways since Tchaikovsky composed the ballet score in 1875. There was Natalie Portman's complete creepiness in the 2010 psychological thriller Black Swan. I had the craziest dream last night about a girl who was turned into a swan,
12: but her prince falls for the wrong girl and... She kills herself.
0: Well, there's a new twist on the ballet. Forget dancers pretending to be swans. A French dance company is putting on a performance in Paris involving live swans sharing the stage with human performers. It's called simply Swan. Luc Peton is the choreographer.
11: The idea behind Swan is to recreate a new old world where communication could be possible, you know, between all living creature, and especially birds and dancer are like cousin for me because both of them uh, are dealing with movement, with my migration, and they have both uh, international language, and they are both very fragile. And is a dancer that becoming uh, uh, wild, maybe as wild as this one.
0: The production's been in the works for two years now. A zoo offered the dance company some swan eggs. When the swans hatched, the dancers and swans began to bond. Marie Senaive is one of the dancers.
8: They adapt to us, of course, but we also try to adapt to them. We have done a lot of imitation process, like spending hours imitating them and just being there and listening and looking at them, and they look at us. We just spend time with them. Feeding, sleeping, playing, swimming, everything. Some of us also, uh, we slept with them.
0: Guillaume Abrias is the company's bird keeper. He explains that the divas on this stage are not necessarily the dancers.
3: Swans are, are moody birds, and sometimes a bad mood. This morning, for instance, one of the swans uh, sucked very strongly the leg of one uh, urban dancer. <laughs>
0: Dancers have to contend with more than just the occasional pecking. There are also the realities that come with having live creatures on a stage. Dancer Marie Sinaev. If you
8: are working in this performance, you cannot be afraid of uh, rolling on the droppings or touching uh, dirty things. It's like
0: life going on on stage. Life going on on stage and on the road. The dance troupe, including the Swans, will be touring soon. They're going to go to Germany and Switzerland. The dance company says it would love to travel much more extensively, but it's limited to countries where the star performers won't be stopped because of quarantine rules. Many thanks to the BBC's Emma Jane Kirby for this story. If you'd like to see the graceful pitter-patter of webbed feet, a video of swan is at theworld.org. And finally, music producers are always on the lookout for new talent. Just ask Ian Brennan. He's a Grammy Award-winning producer who helped bring the northern Mali group Tanarawin worldwide recognition. Now Brennan expects to do the same for the Malawi Mouse Boys. He was traveling in Malawi, and a group of young men selling roadside snacks were singing, and that caught his ear. Ian Brennan shares the rest of his story with music broadcaster Matt Coles.
10: We met them beside the road where they were selling mice, which is what most of them do for a living. It is a local delicacy. They uh, boil mice that live in the thatch roofs of the huts and then they put them on a stick and they sell it by the stick to the passing travelers. It
2: wasn't the food, ten boiled mice per stick, that attracted his attention, but rather the battered instruments that lay by the roadside. The men, all childhood friends from the same village, engaging in a bit of ad hoc busking when trade in mice kebabs proved slow. Music producer Ian Brennan was instantly hooked. He'd spent two and a half weeks searching for music in Malawi and had found practically nothing. On a dusty roadside verge watching a 20-year-old singer called Alfred perform, he knew his luck was about to change. <laughs>
10: He reluctantly agreed through an interpreter to play a song, and it was obviously a good song, but he was so shy that it was almost inaudible, the, both the guitar playing and the music. And the kids were pressing in kind of aggressively from from the village, and the sun was going down, and at the minute that he hit the chorus, suddenly they all erupted into the chorus. <laughs>
9: ¶¶
10: That moment was one of the most musical moments I've ever had in, you know, decades of music making. And at that moment, I knew that there's a record. I mean, I could only, you know, I could only mess it up because it was there.
12: (laughs) ¶¶
2: Having won their trust, he set about recording an album's worth of material.
10: There's two neighbouring villages on each side of the main road. Uh, They're both quite small. One is probably about 100 people and the other one is less than 40 or 50 people. But it's so remote that there was no road for cars to get into it. All of it was recorded outdoors and all of it was recorded next to their next to their homes <laughs> The hope was to to go to Malawi specifically, that you know, the poverty is so severe, the rates of AIDS are so severe, and yet there's a voicelessness there that that is unjust and unfair to think that, uh, you know, you can have thousands of bands coming out of a city like Los Angeles and zero coming out of an entire country with with a rich, diverse history is, uh, I think, uh, absurd. And the mice? Did he try them? I'm vegetarian, so I have the perfect <laughs> perfect built-in excuse. I don't eat my friends.
12: So. <laughs>
0: That was music producer Ian Brennan talking about the Malawi Mouse Boys to broadcaster Matt Coles. Ian Brennan produced the group's debut album, He Is One. You can watch a short documentary on the Malawi Mouse Boys at theworld.org. From the Nana Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins.
12: <laughs> So in the Dalila, you know, so I Oh who in the Dalila, you know, I guess Dalila, Oh, now, yes, ooh, the
2: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environment problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet.
11: PRI Public Radio
2: International